perfect in all of your ways. Thank you for loving us so fiercely. Your love is so undeniable. Um, you're such a good, good father. We are never alone. Just please be with us the remaining of the service. In your name, amen. Thank you. Praise you.
starting today and um, going for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about um, the battles that happen in the quiet of your mind. It's a place where uh, your thought is had, nobody knows about it, you don't voice it, but the thought becomes an idea, the idea grows into an action that you start acting on. Now, that's the normal process of things. That's how things work for us. And it's great unless the thought you start with isn't true or accurate. You start with something that's not true and accurate, and the idea that your thought feeds and then the action that you have starts to really mess up your life. It's why we're calling this series uh, mind games. This is, this is not somebody playing a mind game on you, like, for instance, taking the tables and chairs down and just leaving chairs in place. It's not like that. This is a, this is a, a game you play on yourself. And I want to be careful how I say this, uh, because I'm not, I'm not attempting to belittle you if this is happening. I'm not attempting to shame you or to suggest that it's all just in your head. Our our thoughts that we have, they come from very real experiences that we have, very real circumstances that we find ourselves in, very real feelings that we have. The problem is, sometimes, in the middle of all of that stuff, what you interpret as accurate and true isn't. And so the, the, the game that you play is you start feeding yourself Stuff that's not true, and then, and this can take a while, you're surprised when it starts to come out of your life in a weird kind of way. We uh, started the morning um, with that song uh, before I came up here called The Final Masquerade. It's, it's kind of, we're, we're choosing different topics each week that we're going to talk about, and that song fit the topic that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about this little thing um, called imposter syndrome. Um, don't, uh, don't put up that slide yet. I'll call for it when it goes, Josh. In 1978, there were um, some counselors who got together and said, man, we're starting to see this small group of people who all have the same kind of things that they're talking about. We don't have a way to identify it. And so they came up with this idea that it would be called imposter syndrome. Uh, <clears throat> just a handful of people at the time. But over the last five years, counselors are reporting an explosion in the number of people they're seeing. Um, imposter syndrome is not you trying to impersonate somebody else. It's this um, kind of thought that happens. I've been given this role for me to fulfill. But there is something wrong with me, and if people really knew who I was who I really was at the core, they would know that I'm a fake and a fraud in this role. You can put up that screen now. And it, um, it becomes this thing where your confidence is undermined, where you worry about everything, where you see the things that God has placed for you to do as almost impossibilities. I'm not sure I can do this role. Where's the stuff showing up? Everywhere. Because of where it's exploding, they're seeing it everywhere. They're talking to people in their jobs. That person, that person was given a role. Somebody thought they were skilled enough to do it, 
And they got in it, and it became hard and difficult. And the thought that they started to have was that I don't think I'm qualified for this. And it feeds an idea. If people really knew who I was, I'd be fired. And it starts to come out in actions where you're paralyzed and how you live is just a mess. They're finding it's coming out in relationships where people have um, great friendships or parenting or marital relationships. And counselors are seeing people who are saying, I've concluded based on how I live that I can't be a good friend. This is something I'm not capable of. If they knew who I really was, they would never be my friend. If they knew who I really was, I'm not sure I would be allowed to be a parent. I don't think I have the skills for this. I don't think I can pull off this relationship. I know I'm married, but if you knew who I really was, and the desire to kind of wear a masquerade of face to hide all of that becomes very real. They're seeing this with college students, where college students, they were accepted into a university, and they go there, and they see other gifted people who are working really hard, and they conclude, I'm not the same caliber. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm competing with these people. I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. Now, it just seems outlandish to have these kind of thoughts, right? Two weeks ago, I'm, um, I'm driving with my wife. We're on a road trip. And a discussion came up that we've had um, often over the years. We, I have a different opinion. She has a different opinion. We know this. We have discussions about it. Sometimes we learn more things about it. Sometimes we learn nothing has changed. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not really a disruptive discussion. I mean, there's not a lot of energy to it or anything like that. But two weeks ago, something changed. I mean, we're in the middle of this discussion, and um, suddenly there is a level of energy and a burst of emotion that I haven't seen in my wife. I mean, is so out of character. And she was saying some stuff that I don't hear her normally say. Um, like the energy that she was delivering with, I was like, what is going on here, Right? And she finished. And I decided not to talk. Like, I wasn't really sure what just happened there. And normally, I do something to provoke these sorts of things. I get it. Like, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what I had done or what was going on. And so for the next five minutes, it was just quiet. I think we would have welcomed a cricket in the car. That would have been nice. Right? We would have taken that, but he's just flat out quiet. And after about five minutes, um, Tracy said this. She goes, you know what? I'm, I've been sitting here thinking, and I think what's at the bottom of this for me is that what I'm concerned about is that if you really knew who I was in relation to this topic, you wouldn't like me. We've been married 27 plus years. Her position is not a mystery to me, right? I, I know what she thinks. That's not shocking. But the thought had been fed into an idea that had been acted on. 
that maybe you really don't know who I am and you're going to so dislike this person that, I'm, that I really am that you'll end up not liking me. This uh, topic got slated maybe 10 months ago. It's been on my radar that long. I did not think two weeks before I'd be talking about it that I'd have a discussion where my, with my wife where she had felt that that was happening in our own relationship. Never saw that coming. Uh, what's fascinating, I can't prove this or not. Uh, this is just uh, counselors who are writing about this right now. They're suggesting that 70% of people in the U.S. find um, themselves in a situation where they deal with this, where they're wrestling with this at one time or another, where they think, the role that I've been placed into, I'm not sure I'd really be accepted, that I'd be okay if I did this role. Like, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. You'd think I was a fraud, you'd think I was a fake, and I should be removed. Now, what I think is at the core of this is that I, believe, I believe that God would like to speak into your life in a meaningful way, would like to cut through the view that you have of you and say some stuff. But, but the problem is, it's not that God hasn't spoken or he hasn't wanted to speak. I think he actually has. Probably um, throughout your lifetime, he's found ways to speak into your life. The problem that I see most often is that there is so much interference from the message that God wants to deliver into your life. And many times, the interference comes from you. It comes from me. It comes from thoughts that we have that become ideas that become action, that now shape the way we live and the way we think and the way we act. And God wants to step into that and have something to say about that. Now, the question I had as I started reading these things and saw that it was 1978 when they even coined the term, I started going, is, is this a modern thing? Like, <laughs> is this something else we can blame on social media, right? Can we, can we say that's the problem? Or is this part of human condition, and um, so what I did is I started paying attention to what was in the scriptures. And I think that we're going to find that this has been around for a long time. I want to take you uh, to a unique book. It's called the Book of Judges. And the Book of Judges is about a time in the history of Israel where God was king. There was, there was no other hierarchy in place. God led Israel, and on occasion, he would partner with people. He would pick people to um, step into a key role to lead Israel for a time. Like something big had to be done. He partners with people to do that, but then they go away, and God remains king. It's during this time, because the, the people couldn't see God, couldn't touch God, they would get disloyal. They would start cheating on God. They would start worshiping other idols. They would start doing other things, and they would wander. And as they wandered, God would let them, and they would get into trouble, 
And then they would plead for God to, to come and rescue them. And because he loved them, he would continue to come back. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a time where that happened. Because in Judges chapter 6, we're introduced to a guy named Gideon. And Gideon's living in one of those periods of time where Israel had walked away from God. They're, they're kind of doing their own thing. And they started praying, pleading out to God, God, do something. And so God decides to partner with Gideon. Like most of the other judges, he's highly flawed, which is good news. It means God has a chance to work with me, has a chance to work with you, because we're all flawed. But God taps him on the shoulder, and I want you to see the first words of this conversation. I want you to see how this starts. Now, th this is eventually going to make it into an imposter conversation, but there's some work that we have to do to get there, okay? So we're going to start in verse 12. The angel, oh, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He leads off with the two things that Gideon needs the most. He needs to understand that I'm with you. That you're, what I'm about to ask you to, to, to do, I'm not sending you out on your own. I'm with you. Why is this a big deal? Well, it turns out, if you're alone, and you really believe that, and often, some, often the reason the thought gets off in the first place, it's not accurate and true, is because you're alone, and you didn't check it with anybody else. And when you're alone... The only person you trust is you. The only version you can believe in is yours because you're alone. And, and God knows this. Hey, I want you to understand, Gideon, you're not alone. I'm about to try to reshape the way you're thinking here. So number one, you're not alone. And then the second thing that he communicates to Gideon that Gideon needs to know is this. I see who you really are. Who's Gideon, really? Mighty warrior. I, I know you've never considered that, Gideon, as a possibility. But I know who I made you to be. And when I look at you, that's what I see. And if you want an accurate and true picture of who you are, you're going to have to accept my version of the story. Does Gideon accept? his version of the story, or is there interference just like there is in our lives? Oh, there is, and it's so polite. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, right? I'm sorry, angel of the Lord. I must interrupt you right now because although I know you're speaking with me and telling me the way things are, I think you have things wrong, so let me just stop you there, right? Pardon me, my Lord. Um, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Oh, that's a great question. In fact, I think it might be the question that we have often with God too. Because what God just said to Gideon was, hey, you want to know what's true? I'm with you. And Gideon said, if that's true, then why? Isn't, isn't that how we operate with God sometimes? God says to you, I'm with you. And we say, 
Well, if that's true, then why don't I have more success? If that's true, then why am I facing financial difficulty? If that's true, why did this harm come to me? If that's true, why do I feel this way? We have this, well, why then, God? We, we don't take him at his word. We become the arbiter. We're like, we're going to decide when God is actually with us based on what we think that would look like or should look like or be. And that's exactly what's happening with Gideon too. Gideon needs to know God's with him. And instead of accepting that, he says, if you were, then why? Is that enough to frustrate the angel of the Lord? No. He's undaunted. He's unflinching. In verse 14, he comes back at Gideon and he says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have, save, the, save Israel out of the Midianites' hands, am I not sending you? And he reemphasizes, he says the same thing in a different way. Am I not sending you? You're a representative of mine. Do you not understand we're together? I'm with you. I don't know how else to say that. I'm with you, man. And I know who you are. Would you go in the strength that you, I've already given you. See, I see who you are, and I've given you what you need to accomplish this thing. But you're going to have to step up and step in. Like, it's pretty convincing. Verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord. Right? Shut up, Gideon. Right? Listen, he's, he's telling you what's true. But your version of the story is so true to you, you won't even let God speak into your life. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon says in verse 15. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. How in the world can I step into the role of leader if people knew who I was, if they knew where I came from, if they knew my family, my clan, they would know I'm an imposter. They would know that I'm a fake and a fraud. I know I can't do that. Why are you asking me to step into this thing in the first place? It was fascinating. I've been, as I've been reading these articles, I came across a little thing um, where they kind of made a list of the uh, different kind of struggles that counselors are talking with people about with imposter syndrome. And uh, it kind of struck me that these five categories are the very things that I hear Christians using for the reason not to listen to God's view of who they are. I, I just, I just want to tell you... The, these are counselors who are talking to people right now saying, this is what we're running into. We're running into people who are perfectionists. Their pursuit is to do everything perfectly. And they wrestle 
with self-doubt and worry if they can't. They want to be in control of everything because their goal is 100% perfection 100% of the time because that's where they get their value from. God would like to speak into your life in a way, but why do you need God to set a standard for you when you've set the standard? You know what it is. It's perfection. And you know when you don't hit it, what you have to do. You have to go back and be perfect, or you just have to stop doing that altogether because you can't do it perfectly. And instead of allowing God access to our lives, perfection becomes the thing that causes us to feel fake. And yet, we refuse to listen to God. In fact, we don't really need him because we've set the standard ourselves. The second one is an achiever. These are people who decide, I'm gonna get a lot done. What I do is what matters. And I'm gonna stack up all the stuff that I do and when I have that stack, I can look at it and say, look, that's me. That's the value that I provide to the world. The value is not in who God made you to be. The value doesn't come because of you were made in God's image. It has to do with what you do. And so you pour all your effort and energy into that. And if at one point you feel like you can't do enough, you feel like maybe I'm a fake, I'm a fraud. But here's the thing. There's not even a need for you to listen to God because you know what you have to do. You just have to do more. And instead of having God speak into your life in any kind of meaningful way, you're just going to keep doing. You'll actually work yourself into a grave. You'll give up family. You'll give up vacation. You'll give up whatever you have to just to show people that you are of value. Third category they found was those who see themselves as naturally gifted. The stuff that they set out to do, if it's not easy right away, they quit it immediately. They look at it and stuff and say, well, apparently I'm not made to do that. And it's never dawned on them that sometimes hard work has to be done in order for you to learn what God wants you to do. Do you know Gideon had never been a warrior before? He'd never filled that role before. He was going to have to work at it. He was going to have to learn some stuff in order to be able to step into that kind of a role. But instead, what Gideon did was he looked at his place in the world. He said, listen, I'm from a small clan. I'm from a small tribe, a weak clan, and I'm the weakest in my family. My natural gifting says I'm incapable of doing this. And I'm going to listen to that first and foremost. Didn't need God. He just looked at the world around him and came to his own conclusions. They're talking to people who are rugged individualists. Now, um, for, for many of us who suffer with that, um, some of us do that because we're just deeply stubborn. But sometimes what's behind all of that is that what we don't want to reveal is that we need help. That we can't do this on our own. And if we can't do this on our own, then maybe it means we're not qualified, we're not good enough. And our fear of that causes us to just pursue this individual thing 
Do we need God? No. In fact, I can't have God help me if he helps me. It proves that I'm not capable of doing what I was set out to do. And then the last one is the expert. They found it's all about the skills you acquire. If you can acquire a certain level of skills, then you feel confident. But in your job, if you don't feel like you're an expert yet, you're like, well, then go get another job. Just, I mean, do something else. I can't get another job. I have to, I have to conquer this one first. And I'm not sure I will. And so these people end up paralyzed because they're not an expert. And, oh, I hope you don't ask me too many questions because it will reveal how much I'm still learning. Can I, can I tell you, I've struggled with that at times in this role. I've had conversations with people um, who, who think I will have memorized the whole New Testament or the Old Testament, right? They'll come up to me and ask me about an obscure part and go, you know about that, right? No, I don't. I'm going to have to go look that up. I don't know if you're talking about makes sense or if you're crazy, right? And they kind of look at you like, dude, you're a pastor, right? What's wrong with you? And so you struggle with this. Man, I'm supposed to be the expert. But here's what all five of these things are really good at doing. They're good at causing you to worry to, be, um, to have a sense of fear at the core of who you are, and they make you feel alone. And if you can be isolated, if you can feel like I'm alone in all of this, then the only person that you listen to is you. The only version of the story that you can trust is yours because you're not sure you can trust anybody else. Nobody knows you like you because you haven't revealed that to anybody. Nobody understands why you pursue perfection like you do. Nobody understands all of that, and it isolates you and convinces you that the thought was true and accurate. And now it's an idea that's true and accurate. And now you're starting to act on what is true and accurate, and it's not. See, the story of who you are is found in who God sees you. And the angel of the Lord is in this battle with Gideon. And if he's not going to be persistent, Gideon's going to pardon me, Lord, his way right out of this thing. Because his version of the story is right. Verse 16, the angel of the Lord is going to persist. Says, I will be with you. He goes down to say, I'm going to help you in this battle. You're, you're going to win because I'm, going to, I'm with you. And he goes back to those two things all over again. I'm with you. I know who you are better than you do. I wish you would listen to my version. Now, can I tell you, I, I grew up in church. I've heard people talk about Gideon uh, my whole life. And almost everybody who's talked about Gideon has talked about um, how he's kind of um, a bad dude. Listen, uh, God came, asked you to do something, and you argued with him. In fact, you started asking for signs, which is what happens in verse 17. He, the angel does it three times. I'm with you. I know who you are. Three times. And Gideon says, well, we're going to we're gonna have to pass some tests here. I'm going to put a sheepskin down on the ground 
Tomorrow morning when I come out, I want the ground to be wet, but not the sheepskin. If you can do that, I'll believe you. Next morning, it was that way. It's like, eh, that's close, but let's do this. I'm going to put the sheepskin on the ground, and the next morning when I come out, it's got to be wet, and the ground's got to be dry. If you can do that, then I'll believe you. And, and so he comes out, and the next day that's there. And it starts to go off in his head, maybe God is with me. But here's what's fascinating about this. I can't find anywhere in the text where God voices a sense of disappointment in Gideon for doing that. Um, towards the end of his life, Gideon puts up an idol that ends up being a stumbling block for the nation, and God voiced his displeasure for that. But nowhere does God voice his displeasure in this process. In fact, I want you to see this. I think this is fascinating. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a um, chapter in the New Testament where they're talking about how important faith is. And they read you all the way back, and they say, listen, even from ancient times, God cared about faith. And he says this in verse 32. He's just listed a whole bunch of people and how faithful they are. And he says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. What? Wait. Gideon was faithful? Gideon started with, pardon me, Lord. Argued with the, the angel of the Lord about what he should do, demanded signs, was afraid. But he did something else too. See, into this story, Gideon finally accepts that God's with him. He decides to believe that he is mighty warrior and he would step into that role. And by faith, he does something that he was afraid to do. And at least he did it. At least he allowed that mind game that he had been playing on himself to be rejected and for it to be reset by God's very words. You know, part of this I can understand. Because the truth of the matter is, Gideon wasn't wrong about God not being with them for a while, but it wasn't God's choice. See, Israel had walked away from God. And when Gideon was like, well, what then? Look, look, you did this. Why aren't you here? God's answer could have just simply been, I'm not the one who walked away, you did. So when you ended up feeling alone, it was because you withdrew from me. I don't know if you've wrestled with a sense of feeling like I'm not sure I'm capable of doing what God's asking me to do. But can I tell you, your solution to that starts the same as it does for Gideon. It's accepting this idea that you're not alone, that God is with you. And God demonstrated his love for you by sending Jesus died on a cross for you, rose again, took your sins away. His love for you is over the top. But I want you to see 
what he says about who you are in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says this, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? You are. It says this, who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have received from God. God is with you. And the only way that that can't be true, there's actually a couple, is at this point in your life, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus in the first place. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't demand that you listen to his voice. So if you've said, I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. Stay away from me. He will. As a follower of Jesus, he automatically sends the Holy Spirit to you to reside in who you are, to speak into your heart. But here's what the scripture does reveal. He can talk to you and you can ignore him over and over and over again to the point that you quiet his voice in your life. It's not that he's gone away. It's that you've decided to shut yourself off to that voice. And, and I just want to suggest to you that if you want to have a healthy understanding of who you are and how you're to live in this world, you're going to need the presence of God in your life. You're going to need to find a way to repair that relationship because God understands who you are more than you do. And you may need to put yourself into a place where the interference goes away, where you're praying about the roles that God has asked you to step into with courage. And you pray and you listen. Maybe you fast and you ask God, give, give me some words to understand who you made me to be. Give me a picture that I can hold on to because I want to have an accurate view of how you see me so that my version of the story isn't the only one that I build my life around. It might be that you need to start serving somewhere so you can see God interacting, partnering with you in a way that he can speak into your life. But somewhere, somehow, these thoughts that we have in the quiet of our mind, they have to start coming into the presence of God. It may be that you have to have some courage to share that with a friend who can, who can help you wrestle through the thoughts that you're having about your inability to do the roles that God has placed you in. He did not make a mistake. He loves you. He knows who you are. And he did not make a mistake. And the time may be to find a way to stop listening to the story that you've told and let God rewrite the story he always intended. He's with you. He knows who you are. Let me pray with you.
God, I think what Gideon was dealing with is just part of the human condition. We find ourselves alone. We evaluate the circumstances or the stuff that we've gone through without you. And we wind up with things that aren't true and accurate, shaping who we are and how we think. God, will you give us the courage to bring that stuff to you? Will you reshape the stories that we tell ourselves? Will you reshape the picture of who we are so that it lines up with your view? God, the people in this room you created to do incredible things in the lives of people around them, that was your plan. Sometimes we don't get to that plan because of the inter interference. So I ask that you would cut through today. That your spirit would provide the truth, the accurate pictures. That you would become the foundation for our living. We ask for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you please stand and sing? this last song with us.
Thanks so much for coming out today. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that you have a great week.